Thanks for listening to the Grace First podcast. If you want to know more about us, head on over to gracefirst.church. Or if you're in the Wichita area, come visit us Sundays at 1015. Well, the scripture reading this morning comes from Psalm 118. And part of the psalm was used uh, liturgically during the Passover in Israel. Uh, And I want to read the psalm for you. This is starting in verse 19. Uh, And I'm going to read through the rest of the psalm in Psalm 118. Open for me the gates of the righteous. I will enter and give thanks to the Lord. This is a gate of the Lord through which the righteous may enter. I will give you thanks for you answered me. You have become my salvation. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this and it is marvelous in our eyes. The Lord has done it this very day. Let us rejoice today and be glad. Lord, save us. Lord, grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. From the house of the Lord we bless you. The Lord is God, and he has made his light shine on us. With bows in hand, join in the festal procession up to the horns of the altar. You are my God and I will praise you. You are my God, and I will exalt you. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. Would you join me and bow with me as we pray? Our Heavenly Father, as Kevin described, Lord, you are holy. You are love. And you have loved us and demonstrated your great love for us by sending us your only Son to be our atoning sacrifice that we may be reconciled to you through him by faith. We look to the cross of Christ and reflect on the preciousness of his atoning bloodshed for us. It was through his obedience that were merited the righteousness we could not earn. And it was through his death that paid for the penalty of our sins, which we could not pay. Lord, have mercy on us. We are sinners who cannot obey you as we ought. Our bodies, our minds, and our wills have been affected by sin. And too often, we do not desire your holiness nor seek you. We run from you to satisfy our desires with the temporary pleasures of this world, even when you pursue us with your loving kindness. O Lord, have mercy on us. It is only by trusting in your Son, who is truly faithful and obedient to your holy laws, that we're able to stand united with Christ before your presence. Empower us by your Spirit to delight in walking with you. Increase in us a desire to know you and obey your word and to seek you daily in prayer. Church, take a moment in silence and confess your sins before the Lord. He is faithful and just to forgive us when we confess them before him. Let's pray. Lord, our sins are our reminders that we, need in, that we need you in this life. 
and that we need to draw near you even when our sinful hearts seek to turn from you. In our weakness, strengthen us that we may seek you. In our sorrow, draw near to us that we may be comforted by you. And in our joys, fill us with your spirit that we may praise you and give you the glory. This morning, we pray for those who are serving in our local government. You are the king who determined and the rise and fall of kings and nations. We pray for our mayor and for those who make decisions and policies that directly affect us. We pray that you will work in their hearts and their decisions will empower your church to not be hindered in the way we proclaim the gospel. And we pray that you will appoint the right people to accomplish your sovereign plan. We also pray for the men and women in our military. We pray that they will be used appropriately as ones who bear the sword according to your judgment. We especially lift up the believers in the midst. Use them to boldly proclaim and stand for the gospel truth. Protect them, guide them, and deliver them, we pray. And finally, we lift up the local law enforcement officers and first responders as they seek to enforce the law and establish justice through their direct action. We pray for their protection and for increase in patience and compassion as they deal with some of the most difficult challenges on the streets. As we prepare to open your word and hear from you, prepare our hearts now to receive the truth with gladness. Open our ears that we may listen with care, that we may be transformed to be more like Christ. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our God, our rock and our redeemer, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In the 1950s, a team of five Wheaton College graduates known as the Alka Five went abroad to the jungles in Ecuador as missionaries in an attempt to bring the gospel to the Huaranian, to the Aka Indians, uh, who were, yes, the, the indigenous folks. And Jim Elliott and his team, they sensed a strong conviction to go to the remote jungles of Ecuador to share Christ with the Hurani tribe. That's the name of the tribe. And they were on a mission. And sadly, their attempt resulted in what seemed like a successful initial contact with them, but were later speared and were killed. Jim Elliott's wife, uh, Elizabeth, along with others, continued her work with the Hurani tribe despite the loss of her husband. These missionaries live to fulfill a gospel mission that the Lord had called them to live. But what about you? What is your mission in life? How has God called you to live? Maybe some of you are called to live on a mission field like Jim and Elizabeth Elliot and the team of Alka 5 to bring the gospel to dangerous countries like Iran and uh, remote jungles of South America. But most of us, we're called to live ordinary lives and live out the gospel where God has placed us today, faithfully and humbly. The mission to which God has called you may uh, may be to be the light of Christ as a public school teacher or as a full-time mom at home. Your mission may be to represent and share Christ 
in your broken home or in your company, whether that be at Spirit or at GE or at a hospital. As disciples of Christ, we're all uniquely equipped and gifted to carry out a mission that God has called us to accomplish. So how should we live to fulfill God's purpose for which we are created? Well, we're going to see a mission story this morning of two disciples. And through their story, we'll see how we are called to fulfill His mission in our lives. This morning, as we continue our study in the Gospel of Mark, we come to a passage traditionally known as the Triumphal Entry of Christ. It is also uh, what we look at and read on Palm Sunday. This is where Jesus enters Jerusalem for the Passover feast, greeted by the pilgrims, waving palm leaves as described by the Apostle John. If you remember Peter's confession a while back in the, uh, Mark's Gospel, he confessed Jesus as Christ, that he is the Messiah. And that was really the per- turning point of Mark's Gospel. From that point on, the mood of the Gospel changed to gloomy as Jesus began to remind them why he must go to Jerusalem to die. He was determined to get there. In our passage this morning, he enters Jerusalem to finally begin his last week of his earthly ministry. But before he enters Jerusalem, there's some preparation work that needs to be done in order to properly usher in the King of Kings. It is a major historical event. When I lived in Northern Virginia, uh, we lived inside the D.C. Beltway. Uh, The Beltway consisted of about 10 miles radius uh, from the White House, and it encompassed Maryland, parts of all of D.C., and parts of Northern Virginia as well. And there were times when there were major events that took place that involved the president, and the Secret Service and the local law enforcement would close certain roads. And most times, you didn't know when this was going to happen. I remember one Sunday morning, I I drove out to the Washington National Stadium to hold chapel services that morning, and it took me about 15 minutes to get there with no traffic. It was about 13 miles out. Well, after I was done with my service, it was around 12.30 in the afternoon when I left the stadium, but something was going on that afternoon with the president, and all the roads that I needed were closed. All the exits were closed. And the traffic was so heavy that it took me about an hour and a half to get through those 13 miles. Now, thankfully, I haven't had to experience that here. And the most traffic I've seen was a duck crossing with some ducklings that stopped about five cars. And it was great. Well, even though Jesus' entry into Jerusalem may not have involved a presidential motorcade and road closures of of significant areas, this did involve a significant entry fit for the humble king. Jesus organized his entry into Jerusalem by sending two of his disciples on a mission. And the Bible doesn't tell us which two, but through this mission, we're going to uncover some important truth through two categories. And our message this morning can really be divided into two major sections. One is our role as believers who are living on mission for God, and two, God's role, who is the sovereign king who is in charge of everything. And we'll see something of Jesus' character and why he is trustworthy. 
So let's see what our role is and what God's role is in our passage. So if you're not already there, uh, turn with me to Mark chapter 11. <clears throat> Mark 11. You can follow along. Uh, I'll be reading the NIV version. The pew Bibles in front of you are NIV. Uh, you can open your, uh, I, your tablets or phones as well. Before we dive into the text, let me paint a brief geographical picture of the rest of Mark's gospel. I have some slides for us this morning. If you remember from last week, uh, Pastor Jake preached on the blind Bartimaeus who was healed in Jericho, but is now following Jesus into Jerusalem. From Jericho, they're now traveling west to Jerusalem. Do we have the, um, the slides? Okay, great. Let me find my pointer. Okay. okay, so what I want you to see is this is the route Jesus is traveling. He is in Jericho. This is where he healed Bartimaeus. And if you look at this, there's a mountain range here. This is the hill that he has to climb up. This is about a 2,500 feet, about half mile in elevation climb that he has to climb up. Can we go to the next slide? Okay, and the next slide is going to show us a little bit more of a closer route. Okay, and along the way, uh, on the hills of Mount Olives here, this is Bethany with Bethphage somewhere nearby. We're not exactly sure where uh, in today, uh, but back then there was a Bethphage somewhere here. And about two miles to the west, you have Jerusalem. So this is where Jesus and his disciples stayed during the night, and this is where he traveled in the mornings during that week uh, to conduct his ministry. You can take the slide down. This was the hometown of Mary and Martha. Okay, Bethany is a hometown of Mary and Martha, and their formerly dead brother, uh, Lazarus, right? They were all part of the family. So Jesus and his disciples stayed in Bethany, likely with them, and then during the mornings he would go and minister uh, in Jerusalem. So with that in mind, let's dive into our text and see through the two disciples how we should live to fulfill our mission for Jesus. Mark chapter 11, I'm going to read the first six verses. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent. I want you to highlight those two phrases. Jesus sent, or that, those two words in that phrase. Two of his disciples saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord needs it. And we'll send it back here shortly. They went. I want you to circle that as well. They went and found a colt outside in the street, tied at a doorway. As they untied it, some people standing there asked, What are you doing untying that colt? They answered, As Jesus had told them to. And the people let them go. Notice who's in charge of this mission. Notice who's in charge. It is Jesus who sent them. It is Jesus who sent. The orders and the purpose of this mission trip for the two disciples came from Jesus himself. When you're given a mission to accomplish, you will be held accountable for the success or the failure of that mission. Think about every task that somebody has given you, whether that was your parents, a friend, your boss. This sense of accountability helps us to remember and focus on our task at hand. As disciples of Christ, we must always remember who sent us. It is Jesus, our Lord, who has sent you 
to faithfully serve him. He has tasked you to be a good steward of the relationships and resources and time which he has entrusted you. To faithfully serve your local church and support the ministries through regular giving. And to boldly declare Christ with word and deed to your non-Christian friends, to your neighbors and your family. And ultimately, we will have to answer to him and report on how we accomplished our mission or fail to accomplish it. When your life seems to be spiraling out of control and you start to lose focus on why you're doing what you're doing, remember that it is Jesus who you're working for. Moms of teenagers and young children, when the day-to-day nurturing and disciplining your children seems like an exercise in futility, remember the one who has sent you and gave you that purposeful task in life to raise your children. And for those of you who are working as employees, if you're a student or if you're a student at home or at school struggling to finish work, when your work seems like it's filled with thorns and thistles and you can't understand why you're doing what you're doing and you just want to complain, procrastinate, and maybe even quit, remember that it is Jesus who has given you that task. Colossians 3.23 tells us, Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Church, in all that you do, remember that Jesus sent you on behalf of his kingdom. The second principle we see on how to fulfill our mission is that they obeyed. We see their obedience in verse 6 as they went to accomplish this task. See, Jesus sent and they went. Disciples of Christ must obey his commands. There will be commands in the Bible that you may doubt and question since it may not make perfect sense to you why God would command it especially in this day, in this culture. For example, in our current culture, the New Testament command to flee sexual immorality nowadays is questioned, especially since the command in this context includes premarital sex, open marriage, and homosexuality, and other sexual immoralities. One couple that I had talked to in the past and I was counseling, they had been living and sleeping together before they were married. And they questioned the validity of this command. Why would Jesus command this? Isn't this obsolete today? Now, God could have given us a list of reasons of why it affects our psyche and and why it affects our mental health or physical and emotional and spiritual health, but that's not how he did it. He didn't choose to guide us by listing all those reasons. Instead, Jesus calls his followers to Obey his commands. We are to teach his followers to obey all that he has commanded us. There will be commands there which will be difficult to obey, especially if it goes against the grain of our culture. But the biblical commands of holiness on human sexuality, on how we are to view our marriage, for husbands to love their wives as Christ loved the church, and for wives to submit to their husbands, 
how we are to raise and discipline our children, administer discipline in the church, and lead holy lives before God must all be obeyed, though they may seem even cruel according to today's standards. As followers of Christ, we live to obey Christ. Now what I want us to ask here, as we look at these first six verses, is who is really in charge here? Notice Jesus' divine foreknowledge that is expressed here in verses 2 and 3, and how detailed his instruction is. They're instructed to acquire an unridden colt, and he even gives them contingency plans. He says, if they ask you this, you say this. It is very detailed. Now, some of you who grew up on farms and ranches, or maybe uh, riding horses and are good at that, you'll be familiar with some of these animal terminology. But if you're anything like me, you may have only heard of these terms from uh, sports teams and firearms and uh, cars, right? And when you're quizzed at the zoo on animal terms like this, you do what I do. You just poke at my kids or poke at the person next to you as they're uh, you know, answering these questions since they subscribe to zoo magazines. And usually they're you know, questions like, what's a group of rhinos called? A crash? Or what's a baby goat called? You know, they're kids. Well, here we have one of those terms. They're, they're asked to grab a colt that has never been ridden. Most of our English translations will state colt. And a colt in our English is a, a, it's, it's a young horse, right? It's a young horse. But in the original language, this was a young riding animal. It could have been a horse. It could have been a donkey or even a mule, which is a horse donkey or a donkey horse. Okay, both Matthew and John, however, confirm that this animal was a donkey. But don't get too caught up on the zoology here and miss the theology. There is a theological significance for the choice cult Jesus requested. Here's why the cult could not have been ridden. First, it was for the purpose of purity for the priestly Messiah. Old Testament animals that have never been yoked were used for two purposes by the Jewish uh, priests, who were the Levites. And they were used for sacrifices, and second, pulling the Ark of the Covenant, an animal fit to carry the Messiah, who fulfills the office of the priest, had to fit within this Levitical guidelines, which came from God himself. Second, it was for the purpose of royalty for the king. See, in the Jewish culture, king's horse could not be ridden by anyone except the king. This was then a cult preparer for the king of kings. Typical king had a powerful horse, and a horse represented war, but a donkey represented peace. Unlike the kings of the Roman Empire or the Jewish kings of history, Jesus, the king of kings, came on a donkey because he was the humble king. He was the king of peace. His detailed instructions to two disciples revealed his foreknowledge of events to follow, but also his sovereignty over the whole situation. See, maybe as we're reading this, you may have wondered well, how could Jesus ask them to go and steal or, or commandeer an animal that is not theirs? Isn't that stealing? To some readers, this may seem like theft. 
It would be as if I asked some of the, the young men in our church that we have a, uh, you know, if we, when we have a, an event, church event coming up, I need you to go and commandeer three vehicles from downtown Wichita. And you may think, well, that's going to end up in some major legal troubles. Well, is that what's going on here? Well, what's going on? Well, some scholars believe that this was prearranged. Okay, but I, I don't think that's a strong interpretation because he was not in the area recently, nor was anyone mentioned of being sent earlier than this. What's happening here is that a king or others of royal authority could borrow an animal that was needed for immediate service. You see, today, one of the, uh, one of the tasks that the Secret Service is uh, tasked with is what they call an advon party. And they send some of the agents to go before uh, a president would arrive, a, a few days or maybe even a week before the president would arrive. And they talk to the locals, they talk to certain stores where they need to uh, assemble or set shop uh, and, and figure things out. They say, hey, the president needs this, uh, we need this space, we need your services to help cooperate with us so that we can accomplish this mission. Well, this is the same thing that we see here. Jesus essentially instructed them, you tell them that the sovereign king, the king of the Jews, needs this donkey. And the king of creation exercises his royal authority. See, Psalm 24 tells us this, that the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it, including this unridden cult. We see through his commands and the obedience of the disciples that Jesus is large and in charge. He is the humble king who throughout Scripture calls us to trust him and follow him. He is in complete control of this situation. And the two disciples simply obey what Jesus had already laid out for them to do. And just like how we saw Jesus sent the two disciples here, when you follow him, he also sends you to your family, to your neighborhood, to your workplace, and he is in total control. When you feel like the world around you is spiraling out of control, your humble king, he sits on the throne. When sharing Christ with others seems like an impossible task, your humble king has already gone before you to prepare those relationships and those conversations that are to be had, just like he prepared this cult. And when living out the gospel through your life, it may seem fearful because of what others around you may think of you. Our king has prepared the way for you, and he is with you to the end. As the disciples went in obedience, you also must go in obedience. When his commands seem too difficult to obey, and when his commands just don't make sense in our culture, the call to the disciples is faithful obedience. Trust him and go in faith, believing that he has already worked out the details for you, just as we see here. All that is required of you is to simply trust and obey. Trust God. He is with you. He is large and in charge. And as we live to fulfill our purpose as believers, our role, as we've seen, is to trust and obey him. God's role is to reign over everything, to be sovereign, to be the sovereign king who is in complete control. 
But our king, unlike the earthly kings that you and I know, Jesus describes himself, or as Jesus describes those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles, lorded over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Unlike this, Jesus is a humble king. He is a gentle king who has come to serve even the least in the society. Join me in the last verses, in verses 7 through 11, as we look at who this king truly is. Starting in verse 7. When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. The scene we just read, as I mentioned earlier, is the traditional uh, Palm Sunday uh, passage, which is the triumphal entry. And it has been called that because he entered Jerusalem triumphantly as the crowd is shouting him as the king. But keep in mind, Jesus has not yet entered Jerusalem. So this is not the the full Jerusalem crowd that is later shouting, crucify him. I'm sure there were some in the mix as well. Uh, There are some, I'm sure, in this crowd that later is shouting uh, as part of the big Jerusalem crowd. But the shouting crowd here is described in verse 9, mostly are those who are accompanying Jesus and his disciples. So what is the crowd saying here? Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It's the very passage we read earlier in Psalm 118. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David, Hosanna in the highest heaven. The word Hosanna literally means cause to save, or in English we would say save us or save us now. The blessings they profess is from Psalm 118, and this was used liturgically to bless pilgrims who came into Jerusalem for the the Passover feast. But their statement here isn't just for any pilgrim. It is a statement for Israel's Messiah, the son of David, who will fulfill the prophecies of the Old Testament and reestablish the throne of David. Earlier in our passage, I read from Zechariah 9, which read, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Rejoice, daughter Jerusalem. See your come, a king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. This is the prophecy that Jesus came in to fulfill. He is the humble king riding on a donkey and the prophesied Messiah from the line of David who has come to save sinners through his death on a cross. But there's another key prophecy which was fulfilled in Jesus' triumphal entry. In 586 B.C., King Nebuchadnezzar under the the Babylonian Empire, he destroyed Jerusalem and forced to take the Jews into exile into Babylon. You can read of this in uh, the the book of Jeremiah. Uh, This is written, it it is all there, and also Daniel as well. Well, during this period, God gave a vision to the prophet Ezekiel of God's glory departing from the temple in Jerusalem 
and says uh, glory rested on Mount east of it, which is Mount of Olives that we saw earlier. Ezekiel 11, 22 and 23 tells us of this vision. Then the cherubim, which is an angel, with the wheels behind, beside them, spread their wings, and the glory of the God of Israel was above them. The glory of the Lord went up from within the city and stopped and above the mountain east of it. See, the glory of God it no longer was in the temple in Jerusalem, but it rested on Mount Olives for a time in this vision. But who was it we just saw that descended from Bethany, from the Mount Olives, into Jerusalem? You see, the glory of God was and is in Jesus, and His glory came back in Jesus. At the triumphal entry, Jesus in His glory descended from Bethany and Mount Olives, entered the east gate of the holy city, and went to the temple. Listen to Ezekiel's prophecy of his glory returning in Christ. In Ezekiel 43, verses 1 through 4, we read, Then the man brought me to the gate facing east, and I saw the glory of God of Israel coming from the east. His voice was like the roar of rushing waters. This is the same language we hear in uh, in the book of Revelation. And the land was radiant with his glory. The vision I saw was like the vision I had seen when he came to destroy the city and like the visions I had seen by the Kabar River and I fell face down. The glory of the Lord entered the temple through the gate facing east. Church, this prophecy has been fulfilled in Jesus' entry into Jerusalem. The one whose voice is like the roar of rushing waters is none other than the Son of God, the Jesus, the Christ, described for us in the book of Revelation. The glory of God descended from Bethany in the Mount Olives as Jesus entered the east gate of the holy city and entered the temple. But the significance of this fulfillment of this prophecy now and forever lies on the location of God's glory. See, throughout the Old Testament, the temple in Jerusalem was where the Ark of the Covenant was held, which represented the presence and the glory of God. But in the fulfillment of this prophecy in the person of Jesus, the glory of God no longer resides in the temple of Jerusalem. Well, then where does it lay? John 2.19, Jesus tells us, Destroy this temple, and I will raise it in three days. Well, what temple was he talking about? about destroying and rebuilding. See, the rebuilding of that temple, he was talking about himself. His death on the cross fulfilled the Old Testament sacrificial system, and his blood tore the veil that covered the holy of the holies, which only the high priest had access to. But it is now available to all those who belong to him and are made, made priesthood of all believers. The Old Testament sacrificial system then no longer applies to us in Christ because Jesus is a final substitute sacrifice. His resurrection raised the temple again, but it was a different temple. This time, the temple was not raised to reinstitute the old sacrificial system of the Old Testament, but a system of faith based not on our works, but on His works of his once-for-all sacrifice. In his ascension, 
We are now the temple of God as the Holy Spirit lives in us. In 2 Corinthians 6.16, the word declares that we are the temple of the living God. His glory is now imparted to the church and dwells in the believers by his spirit. Jesus is the holy temple of God. He is the chief cornerstone, and we are being fitted together to grow together as a temple of the Holy Spirit. And if you have never trusted personally in the person of Jesus, I want you to know that all these prophecies that I mentioned here and the fulfillment of them are his promises coming true. And the evidence is so compelling that the believers throughout history have given their lives and even today will live to give their lives for this truth. And I want you to know that this gospel truth is for you, that Jesus is for you. He calls you to belong to him into this temple. He calls you to live a life of, on purpose of a mission for God and to know the truth of life and death and the salvation that awaits for you, and the hell that condemns you in the end if you do not know Christ. See, our sins, even our smallest degree, are offensive against the holy God, and our sins must all be punished in hell forever, apart from the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ. But see, he has made a way through Jesus for us to turn from our sin and to turn to him in faith. His life, his death, and his resurrection is your only way to salvation. So if you've never believed, and the Lord is calling you through a deep conviction to turn to him, I urge you to turn from your sins and to turn to Jesus, for he is the humble and the gentle Savior who calls you. He is good. He is the way. He is the truth. And he is the eternal life. Some of us in the body of Christ, we will be called to spread the gospel through a dramatic missionary life like Jim and Elizabeth Elliot and the Alka Five. But some of us are called to live ordinary lives right where God has placed you today. And the Lord will use you to accomplish extraordinary purposes through you. Whatever the mission God has given you, your role is to fulfill that mission for God. Remember who has sent you and who you will report to. Obey his commands and trust and follow him, for he is large and in charge. He is worthy of our trust and we can follow him because God's role is to be sovereign and reign over everything. He is the humble king and he is the prophesied Messiah. If you have never believed in Jesus, the call to the gospel to the audience both then and today is simple. It is trust in Jesus, the humble king who is in charge. And if you are faithfully walking on mission for God today, then continue to faithfully trust in our gentle Savior who is sovereign over all. Amen? Well, let's go to the Lord and pray. Oh Lord, as you have revealed your very truth to us, you are the humble and sovereign king who calls us to know you by faith. Though we are not worthy to receive your forgiveness through your son, 
you have shown us at the cross the greatest love known to man in history. And through Christ, we can enter into your throne of mercy with confidence to be forgiven and to be reconciled to you forever. We thank you for this gift of grace, that it is not by our works, but by faith in your works that we can be saved and enter into your glory forever. May we treasure this gift you have given us through your Son. And may we remember that we belong to you in this life and death as we live to obey your commands and trust in the Savior who bled and died for sinners like us. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. There are two clear ordinances which the Lord Jesus gave to his disciples. Baptism and the Lord's Supper. These are two clear commands which the church is to faithfully obey. Last week, we were able to witness a baptism which physically and officially marked our brother Gregory as a disciple of Christ as he, commi- as he committed his life to following Jesus in front of the public assembly. The Lord's Supper is then the ongoing affirmation of that publicly marked faith as we trust and obey our Lord Jesus. If you consider yourself as a disciple of Christ and has never been baptized and would like to make that public commitment to following Jesus, I want to invite you, the elders want to invite you to reach out to one of us and we can walk through that process with you. A disciple is one who follows Christ and obeys all his commands. So if you have never, so if you have been walking with Jesus for some time now, but have not yet been baptized, I want to encourage you to obey the Lord's command to be baptized and not to neglect that one command. For uh, this is what it means to follow Jesus, that we obey and trust him. The table has been prepared for those who are disciples of Christ to be affirmed in your faith and to be reminded of the one who has sent you to accomplish his will. But if Jesus is not your Lord today, and you have not yet been recognized as a follower of Christ by the local church, pass on this element this morning and reflect on the gospel that was proclaimed to you. The scripture gives us a a, a stern warning to examine ourselves before taking the elements in fear that we may bring judgment to ourselves. Jesus came humbly to save sinners. And if you want to become a believer and, and profess your faith publicly through baptism, We would love to talk to you. Well, let us come together as his body to partake in these most sacred and holy elements of the body and the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. 